0: Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 126. So I'm going to do a quick intro here, and then I'm going to launch into the interview with my really special guest, Dr. Rick Ritchie. And I am just so thrilled to have him on the podcast. He is someone that I admire greatly, someone that I have followed, both as a personal trainer because he was one of the trainers in the course that I took my CPT uh, exam or and training program. And also because I am an avid fan of his podcast and his teachings as they are shared within the NASM world, both virtually as well as in person. And I had an opportunity, you'll hear me speak to it in the episode Uh, to reach out to him and ask him if he would be so kind as to be a guest on my podcast. And when he said yes, I was super thrilled. Uh, This is gonna be for yoga teachers, an opportunity to hear from someone in the exercise science industry with some really good information about anatomy, which is the focus of my podcast here. And also to really hear about his journey, uh, starting out uh, with his passion for wellness and how that began uh, moving into the exercise science industry as a trainer, and then eventually opening his own line of uh, gyms that uh, he has a unique take on. And I think, you know, the entrepreneurial part of his journey will definitely be something that not only interests you, but maybe gives you faith that this is a path that you can take as well. And he talks a little bit in the episode here about the role that having faith in himself really played in his um, not only ability, but in his motivation to open his own business. Uh, And then we go into at the end of the episode, you'll hear a number of really practical examples where I ask him some questions about yoga poses, things that as yoga teachers we see. And you might wonder, why is the person doing it that way? So we get into some of the ground level anatomy. So I know as yoga teachers, you're going to enjoy this. If you are joining this episode and you haven't been on my podcast before, and maybe you're here because like me, you're a huge fan of uh, Rick Ritchie and Or you are a uh, exercise science uh, person, uh, trainer, personal trainer, I want to welcome you here to my podcast. And I hope that you find uh, some value not only in I know you're going to find some value in this conversation, but maybe in some other ones as well. So I hope you'll stay on board. So I want to give you just a quick intro uh, about Rick, because we don't go into it in the episode itself, we launch right into it, we hit the ground running, as they say. Uh, And I definitely want you to have an understanding of his background. So um, Rick has worked in the fitness industry since 2002 as a trainer, a licensed massage therapist, a college and university adjunct professor, uh, an NASM faculty instructor, author, subject matter expert and talent for the fitness industry, education doing educational videos, in textbooks, and web-based content. He has been a presenter at numerous fitness conferences within the U.S. and internationally. As I mentioned, he is an entrepreneur. He is the owner of Independent Training Spot, a New York City-based personal training gym, a number of gyms for independent trainers to rent space and run their own businesses. He also has developed a continuing education company for personal trainers, called HMS Resources. Rick hosts the NASM CPT podcast and holds a master's degree in exercise science and a doctorate in health science. And at the end of the episode, Rick does speak to how you can um, follow him and how you can take advantage of all of the information that he puts out there. So I definitely wanna encourage you to do that as well. So here we are. Um, I'm just getting ready. I'm going to be just getting ready to launch into this episode. I just want to uh, just make one quick note. I always like to note the date. So I'm recording this intro on Friday, April 16th, 2021. This episode will go live on Monday, April 19th, 2021. And I do just want to um, do a quick um, kind of shout out in a way to two new resources I have uh, out there. So number one, I did a workshop on hip anatomy yesterday. And if you missed that, um, I'm actually gonna be offering it as something you can get From the perspective of just the replay. So if you're interested in that, you can send me an email, Karen at barebonesyoga.com. Technically, the offer to get the replay ends uh, on Sunday, which is the day before you'll hear this episode. However, because the timing is a bit off, I'm going to extend it as an opportunity for you as well. And then the other thing I wanted to let you know about is I compiled um, some of my most popular downloads for yoga teachers that cover everything from building a yoga sequence to breaking down anatomy into key steps to study it, to learn it, uh, as well as myofascial release and other aspects of teaching. And you can get essentially this compilation ebook just by visiting my Facebook page. And it is the pinned post at the top. If you have any trouble, or maybe you're not on Facebook, just send me a DM and I'll send you the link to that free ebook resource for teachers. So that covers the things I wanted to share before we launch into this episode. Uh, I really, really hope you love this as much as I did in hosting him. And I would encourage you to send either Rick or myself any questions or thoughts that you have that came up as you listened to our chat. So here we go. I introduce Rick Ritchie. Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Karen Fabian, and we're here on my podcast called Conversations for Yoga Teachers. And I am here with master trainer, Rick Ritchie from NASM. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And I I mean, I'm always happy to get the invite. So when you invited me, I was like, all right, let's do this.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you first, have you ever been on a podcast for yoga teachers?
1: Never, no, I've never been on a podcast for yoga teachers. So, uh, okay. so thank you. And it, I didn't know if you got the right person when you asked me. <laughs> I was like, uh, I'll, I'll do it, but know what you're getting into.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there won't be any Sanskrit in this conversation. <laughs> okay, and
1: good. there
0: won't be any conversation about like mudras or, you know, chakras or any of that. Um, and as we talked about before we started the recording. Um, My focus is on anatomy. Your expertise is absolutely anatomy and the application of that in the context of exercise science. And it's a perfect fit. I think it's an opportunity for my listeners to get much more than they oftentimes get exposed to in kind of the standard presentation of anatomy. So you're in the perfect spot and we're going to be focusing on your area of expertise, which is Totally germane to yoga practice. So thank you again.
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm happy to talk about it.
0: Okay. So what I'd love to do, I mean, I think for the listeners, I should, in full disclosure, just mention when I got my original certification as a trainer, Rick was the person that was part of the CEU program itself on video. And so that was my first introduction to him. And over the years, I've followed his path in terms of his podcast and webinars he's on. So I'm really familiar and a total fan of his. So in a recent conversation on his Instagram, which I would highly recommend you guys all follow. Um, and what is your Instagram? It's Rick. It's Richie. A
1: D-R dot Rick Ritchie. R- right.
0: Okay. So he had mentioned going on a podcast and that's, as he said, how I got the catalyst to, to write him and say, Hey, come on my podcast. So I have some of this background, however, my listeners won't. And I always think, I hate to use kind of a trendy term, but it's really the perfect term, which is to ask you to tell us about your origin story. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to start from when you were born. Um, However, I do know from your conversations in the past, you talk about growing up in the South, and I never quite figured out how you got from growing up in the South to being in the Northeast. I know you've talked a lot about travels you've done. So maybe just give the listeners a sense of how you ended up where you are, maybe not geographically, although you can talk about that, just kind of how you ended up being an expert in health and training and exercise.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, it, it started when I was a boy. Uh, no. So <laughs> I, I like that, uh, origin story. Cause it sounds like a superhero. I know. Thing. Like take me back to before you knew you had powers. Yes. So when uh, <laughs> I think I was, if I go back to kind of starting all of this out, at about 14 years old, I joined a gym in my hometown of Florence, Alabama, and there was a guy that was a martial arts teacher there who owned the gym, mm-hmm. and I started doing martial arts and became very involved in the martial arts world and competitions and um, forms and fighting, and, and, and it, was, it was really enjoyable. I, I enjoyed it, but he was also a personal trainer. And he owned a gym. And so he would be like, hey, uh, when you do this kick, whatever, this muscle is doing this. you need to focus on this and this muscle. And so he was talking about anatomy and I was, I was learning it. And then I found I was doing better in school in anatomy, that at least when we were doing anatomy, than a lot of my cohort. So, uh, so it kind of steered me towards it. But I also did uh, a lot of theater at the time. And so I moved to Atlanta for a couple of years and then uh, I moved to New York in 2001. And then uh, I went on tour with a theater company. And when I was done, I thought I'm done. That was nice. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I did it and I'm Mm -hmm. glad it's over and I don't want to do any more. Yeah. So I got a job at a gym and my goal was to get a free gym membership so I could work out while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought personal training was a cool job. Yeah. And you know, if you said, if you told me then that I would still be a personal trainer five years later, I would have thought that was nuts. Yeah. Um, so if you told me I'd be a personal trainer 20 years later, then I thought you were out of your mind. And now wow, are 20 years later and, uh, and, and still working in fitness. And here's the difference. This is the game changer. Starting out, it was for very selfish reasons. I did it for me. And yeah. as I continued, I realized how uh, intrinsically valuable it was for me to know yeah. that I was helping other people. Right. So when people say, oh, I got into to doing things because I like to help people, I always kind of look at that questioningly. like maybe you did, maybe you didn't, <laughs> but the reason you stayed yeah. is because you want to help people.
0: Yeah, It's okay yeah. if
1: you didn't start that way, but it's probably the reason mm-hmm. you're still around.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your um, theater background. I, um, I'm also a huge fan, total non sequitur sort of, of Ryan Serhant, who's a real estate Guy, he's on that million dollar listening New York show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And um, he also has a theater background and he ended up in New York to try to get a job on Broadway or something. And now he's a real estate person and very successful, has a TV show, blah, blah, blah. I guess one thing that came to me as you were mentioning that I always talk to yoga teachers, especially teachers who get into the business when they're older and have some other path that they were on. And I always talk to them about how nothing's ever wasted. You know, you can always use something from what you've done in your teaching. Uh, how do you think your theater background serves you as a trainer? Is that something you feel like you draw on? I mean, I can certainly see it in terms of your presentation style is crystal clear. And I think that definitely is a helpful skill. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I'm just I, I think
1: you're right. As far as the, the way theater and, being comfortable being in front of people yeah was it helped me become a, a a much better presenter right and that presenting that content and feeling comfortable while other people would know anatomy it it just came out a little different when right. I do it. Right. And I, I mean, I remember having people going, hey, no fair, that's a theater guy. And right. like, that reminded me when I was young and I would fight around with people and they're like, hey, let's fight, but don't do any of that karate. And I was <laughs> like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like that's what fighting is for me. So yeah. this, is of, this is part of the presentation. And for me, it was really good because it gave me my, my quote performance outlet I was able to teach, I was able to talk about something I was interested in, and I was able to get up in front of people and do it. So it it was a nice little marriage of some skill sets that have developed over the years. And Mm -hmm. regarding personal training, I don't know if it helped me become a better personal trainer, but I don't know if I would have continued to be a personal trainer if I didn't also go into education. And that education, that was, that was the glue. That was the heartbeat for me. I wanted to teach and I wanted to, to be with people. And a lot of times now when I train one-on-one, I feel like a teacher, but it's not presentational. It's conversational. It's like, it's like this right here. Um, And so there was, you know, there's, there's magic in all of it, to be honest. And, And I think maybe the, the, the theater definitely helped in the presentation, but just being a good person that's concerned with what's going on in somebody else's life and well being yeah. is going to make you a better trainer or yoga teacher or whatever kind of path mm-hmm. that you go into, to be honest. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when you say going into education, can you talk about that in terms of what that looks like at the ground level for you?
1: Yeah. So, when I started as a personal trainer about a year and a half into it, after I managed several gyms, Uh, then I started teaching exercise science courses for a corporation where it was called foundational courses for personal training. So it'd be like a five day, nine to five intensive for people who did not have certifications mostly. And even if you did, you still had to go through the coursework. And so they would come to the coursework and we would teach anatomy and some physiology and some programming and some business and sales. And this was just part of kind of the business program to help get people ramped up as personal trainers. Uh, As I changed companies, um, early on, uh, we had started partnering with the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and we wanted to teach their content to our trainers. And so NASM said, well, if you're going to teach it, let us send one of our guys out there to make sure that your guys know what they're doing. And that guy came out. His name was Rob Rettman and uh we're still friends still know each other um he just kind of pulled me aside and he was like you should really work for an ASM wow like, you're really fantastic you should work for them and of course like I had such a a complex with it where I was like I don't have a degree in this field mm-hmm. right I'm not I'm not smart enough I'm not educated enough I don't have enough uh, I don't have enough I'm not enough I, I wasn't enough Um, But I did want to go back. I'd gone to get the top national certifications, the top three. uh, So NASM, ACSM, uh, health fitness instructor, and then the NSCA CSES, which is certified strength and conditioning coach. So I went and got all of these really big certifications. And then at one point, there was um, a school that had started an online program, uh, the school's California University of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, I heard there when they did a webinar with Marty and Marty oh and, they did yeah oh, they had two people on who were either professors or administrative type folks because I kept thinking it was in Cali and then it's like no it's yeah. in Pennsylvania yeah. and so I the actually city is
1: California in the state of Pennsylvania
0: yeah I actually thought for myself like huh I could do this online it's program. and it's to get your tell mm-hmm. us what the what the degree path is that you pursued
1: so it's a um, the master's degree, it's a, it's a one-year accelerated program. And I, so I did the performance enhancement and injury prevention track. Huh. Um, so there, there is a re- rehabilitative science track. There's a fitness and wellness track. So I have several different tracks. Um, so in 2005, I went back, I graduated at the end of 05, so 06, like December, Oh uh, five, I finished up. So in oh six, I'm, I now had my my master's degree in exercise science, and and I really feel like once you go back to school for something that much later, it's like you you figured out what you want to do, right. right? So I knew that exercise and fitness, like this, was going to be my my career.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: shortly uh, after I had enrolled in the school without NASM knowing, NASM reached out to me and asked me if I would. Uh, be interested. I, I had applied, but then they reached out and asked if I'd be interested in joining them.
2: Mm-hmm. So I
1: did. And um, uh, this was interesting. I had the option. It, it, now, know this in 2005, Kanye West was a big deal. All right. <laughs> Kanye was a big deal. <laughs> okay. And I was I'm asked, wondering
0: where this is going. <laughs> I
1: was asked to go on a European tour and be Kanye's trainer. And, and I said, Hey, I want to That'd be really cool. But uh, I just got a job, uh, an interview for NASM. And my buddy who had been doing the tour with Kanye um, in the U.S. looked at me and he goes, oh, NASM? He goes, you need to do that. He was like, Kanye and celebrities will come around. They'll come and go. But if you can get a gig with NASM, don't let that go. And so I turned down the Kanye gig and I got a job with NASM. And I've been working with them since 2006
0: wow okay okay well maybe the Kanye thing will somehow come back around who knows I mean
1: I've trained his manager for years he's one of the reasons I was able to to live in New York City and not be like let me find a a cheaper place in Jersey or something to live right so
2: right
0: right okay so here you are you start to work for NASM um and what are you doing for them
1: Uh, This is a good question. So I teach exercise science workshops for them. I teach their certified personal training workshops. So when people sign up for the the coursework, if they want to do a workshop, they can attend and I'll teach those workshops. I'll teach workshops for their corrective exercise uh, curriculum and for their performance enhancement curriculum, though I'm not the best of our NASM team to teach the performance enhancement stuff. We've got some guys on our team that regularly work with some of the top athletes in the world and they own those types of facilities. So that's really their focus. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But, but if I need to jump in there, I can hold my own, but they're definitely uh, some, some better people to teach it. Mm -hmm. I also have um, written several chapters in their textbooks and currently wrapped up a, a new chapter and a new textbook for a new product that'll be coming out soon and uh, they liked it so they asked me to write another chapter Nice. <laughs> so uh, I do some writing subject matter expert and teaching for them
0: nice now I want to just hop back because when you said something about um when they asked you when when you had an opportunity that your friend had mentioned to teach and you kind of had a little bit of that what's called these days, imposter syndrome, you know, I'm not, you know, I know, um, definitely this is a theme that I hear about from yoga teachers was your kind of answer to imposter syndrome that you were feeling to go and get more education. Was that kind of, yeah. And so how did that feel for you? I mean, did that kind of resolve it for you or did you feel like it was that plus combination of experience
1: a combination of experience. I got to be honest, like I still feel it sometime. And since yeah. my master's, I've gone back to get a doctorate in health science. And I yeah. still feel like, mm-hmm. you know, you always look at the other people around yes. you that are doing better than you, or you, yes. like you look up to, or that are smarter, or that are doing research. And I always yeah. look at that. So it's like when you make money, you just look at other people to, and then you feel like you don't have any money. Right. So uh, it's the same way with education. I find all of these really much smarter people, and I listen to them, and I'm like, ah, oh, goodness, I love just, I love just being around them. Yeah. Um, but I was like, if I ever decided to teach at a university level with those people. I don't know if I'd fit in, you know, But and and I've taught at the university level for several different colleges and Mm -hmm. I did just fine, but there's something deep inside, right? That uh, just makes you go, I don't know if I'm there.
0: Sure, sure. And I think on some level, that's, I I don't necessarily know that I want to say it's a good thing, although it can be a driving force to continue to educate oneself. 100%. Yeah. So I know now because of, you know, just following you on social media and just the conversations that you have on the podcast, I know that you have a gym or a series of gyms in New York city. So can you talk a little bit about, because that I'm assuming involves not only entrepreneurship slash business owner, but also working one-on-one with people. So how does that all, how did that all come to be?
1: Well, I will tell you that it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, which is
0: because um, raise money, borrow money, yep,
1: try to open a a a gym
0: in a super expensive city. I mean, next to like LA and San Fran, and I don't
1: know, and highly saturated with fitness.
0: Same, right.
1: Yeah. So that you know it it cost a lot of money and and I mean, for me, um, and it was scary. It was scary to do it. And then I'd read a quote and I just pulled it up real quick. So this is by, from Anias Nin. And this is how I felt about the gym, right? Like I'm scared. I don't want to do it, but I do want to do it. But I don't, but I do. So yeah. she said, uh, this is just a beautiful quote. It said, and the day came when the risk yeah. to remain tight in a bud, in the bud was yeah. more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Yep. And for me reading that, I was like, that's it. Like that's I'm it. hurting so much not doing it that yeah. I have to risk doing it. And so I did. And now I have, um, I have three gyms in New York city, two more in the works right now uh, or in wow. negotiations and discussions and uh, um, uh, continued expansion. And what it is, it's a, it's a gym where basically a co-working space for fitness professionals. So if you're a personal trainer and you need a gym to train your clients out of, you don't want to work at a corporate gym anymore. So, um, if you just want to be independent and train your clients, then you pay me and you can use my gym.
0: And how did you, I know the name of it is independent training spot, right? Is that spot? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come up? That's kind of an interesting format. How did you come up with that?
1: Um, there are multiple gyms in New York that are like oh, really? that. And and we just called them independent training spots. And we'd be like, hey, do you know an independent training spot down in the Chelsea location or- You're like, that's the, the name, side? I want to make that a thing. Yeah. Well, I didn't want anybody to confuse it. I didn't want to be like, hey, this is Rick's gym. And like, well, you don't know if you can train at a Rick's gym or not. Um, and members don't know if there's a membership or not. But an independent training spot, at least if you're familiar with the terms, Kind of tells you exactly what we are. Wow! Um, and and I wanted to be there to be a landing place for for fitness professionals who were enterprising, who wanted to open and run their own training businesses. And yeah. so it's a facility that gave them the opportunity to be business owners. And uh, I wanted to be the first brand of independent training gym that really exists. Cause there are a lot of gyms out there, like, you know, Karen's gym and right. gym, and people right. just kind of open a gym because they think that they want to open a gym. I wanted to open a brand and a series of gyms that felt like a home for any personal trainer if they needed a place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So, um, you know, I want to just take like a little side path. I think I would be remiss in not acknowledging that, you know, number one, you overcame your fear. You were inspired by the Anais Nin quote. And I just that all of that is, is awesome. And then it's open for a certain period of time and then COVID. So can you just briefly talk about how, I mean, and COVID in New York City, which is, you know, every, every city has had its own experience. But I think obviously we all, me here in Boston, we all watch New York as the epicenter for many months. So how was that for you? And how is it now comparatively?
1: It was awful. Um, so for instance, I signed a lease the day before the shutdown for uh, a location. And we were like, hey, this will be great. We'll have two weeks where our designer and our contractors can work together. Cause we were told it'll be two weeks, right? Um, we're like, all right, so let's go ahead and do it. And so anyway, the, that was a that was a, a six figure loss just in security deposit and upfront rent. Uh, and then, I mean, we sued them to try to get it back. We lost, they countersued and won. We we were litigation brought against us in another location because we weren't paying our rent, but nobody was paying rent. So um, he just immediately, as soon as the moratorium was lifted, he had his, uh, his attorneys post things all over our gym. And I was like, oh my goodness. So uh, I've learned something, which is just try to be as transparent and communicate as much as possible as opposed to, to just dipping out and going, oh, everybody else is doing it. I'll do what they did. Because my other landlords were fine with it, but this guy wasn't and right. we were shut down. I mean, we, we couldn't open and it's not like I could do what many trainers did, which is go online mm-hmm. because in essence, my business isn't a training business. It is a real estate business, right? Like mm-hmm. I rent space to people, mm-hmm. uh, fitness professionals. So I, I couldn't do that online. Uh, so it was wildly challenging but once we were able to to open back up and talked with our landlords to negotiate some some rents and what our arrears would be and back payment um, we were able to open up and um, be successful and the one that was shutting us down backed off completely and even gave concessions because I finally talked to him Mm -hmm. so it's it's that kind of transparency that I think needs to um, that, that I'll lean on, certainly, fully going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. So what is it, you know, because here in Boston, there's only a small handful of studios open and gyms are open, although everything is limited in terms of space because of social yeah. distancing requirements as, yeah. as handed to us by the, you know, the governor. Um, so how does it look in real time for, for your gym? Do you have like half staff, not staff, do you have half, you know, clientele coming in? Or?
1: Yeah, we're limited to one third capacity. Okay. So, but that, are people
0: coming? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'd like to have more, uh, we're yeah. not, we're not hitting our capacity every okay. hour of the day. Okay. So, and sometimes not even at prime time. So there are, right. there are a lot of people, there's a big exodus from New York city. There are a lot of people that that took off. And um, I I think a lot of them are going to come back when the school's fully open and children can go back to school. So that way, parents can go back to work. Yeah. Once once that turns the corner, I think we'll be okay.
0: Yeah. Got it. Okay, So um, so that kind of I think where we're at kind of brings us up to sort of current day. I mean, can you maybe just before I launch into my next question, which is kind of high level, can you just give, give us a snippet? I'm kind of curious myself as to like what a general week looks like for you. I mean, are you going between your independent training spot, doing stuff online in terms of training, recording your podcast? Like how does that, how does it kind of look a typical week or month for you?
1: Yeah. Uh, great question. So I do personal training on Mondays and Wednesdays. Okay. And then, and then I'm present at the facility. So I'll do work at the facility. Otherwise I have somebody else that will do the work at the facilities, uh, on the other days for the past several months, I've been working on creating a type two diabetes specialist course. So a type two diabetes fitness specialist course. And, um, and, 2018, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So Mm -hmm. it kind of became a a rallying cry for me to help Mm -hmm. to support people through fitness to to manage their blood sugars. And you know, the the elevated blood sugar can be very, very damaging to the circular system. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: that's why there's so many organs that get affected when people have type 2 diabetes, is because you know, if there's a blood supply, it can be damaged, then. Then there's a challenge there, so uh, I've been developing a course and and recently have been recording the the coursework content, which mm-hmm. will be launching, I assume, in a couple months.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So I definitely want to dive into that a little bit. Um, so I have a little sidebar on your mention of that because I think that that's something that even if we just briefly go into. Um, you know kind of the obvious why you have for creating that course but even just how that's impacted you. So I definitely want to just get back to that. I think for right now what would be helpful since we're kind of starting from a high level is I'd love to just hear from you kind of what your overall philosophy and approach is to exercise. I mean this is something that I think is so topical and yet Um, I think there's so much kind of getting into the weeds that oftentimes trainers and yoga teachers find themselves in the weeds without really having kind of an overall approach um, that's grounded in, I don't know what, it could be grounded in the fundamentals of anatomy, general concepts in wellness. Uh, You know, another way to ask it is, you know, when you work with people, what's kind of the general approach you use. So you can kind of go at it any way you'd like. My my general question is, what is your philosophy and approach to exercise?
1: I, I think my general approach is move more and move better. Yeah. So if we were to, to keep it simple and the, one of the issues that we've seen throughout the years is you've probably heard the phrase uh, "sitting is the new smoking," <laughs> and uh, I, and I will I will counter that with "sedentary is the new smoking." Yeah. So it's not that you sit down; is that you sit down for far too long? That yeah. Because if you ask the
0: bartenders, out. the fact that they're the bartenders and the hairdressers, they have the opposite problem because standing yeah. for them is the new smoking. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and and but there's you know we there might be some orthopedic issues that they'll get, but they're they're not getting heart disease because of it, right? They're not getting heart disease because they're standing. They are getting you know maybe their back hurts, and and I have a friend who who is always doing this with her hands, like her arms are up in the air as a hairdresser, so she gets neck stuff. But you know nobody likes to be hurt, but nobody wants uh, you know a a significant pathology either, and. The data is significant that shows that prolonged sitting and reclining is increasing our, the, the pathologies that we seem to be so common in our country these days. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and movement is the answer. And I, I got to be honest, as an exercise professional, I'd even say fitness isn't necessarily the answer, it's movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can exercise an hour a day and sit the rest of the time and lie the rest of the time. And you're going to be just as sick as many of the other people that didn't do the exercise. Right. And the fact of the matter is moving more throughout the day is going to save your life.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you think about... You know, I, I talk to some people who sometimes say, um, well, I, I walk for exercise. I don't belong to a gym and especially now with COVID, but I'm, I go out and, and I do a, a walk at a good clip. And then there's the other camp that says even, I think, uh, some standard by some government organization where you need to get your heart rate up. For mm-hmm. at least 30 minutes a day, five times a week, or whatever the magic number is 175, yeah. blah, blah, blah. 150
1: so- minutes a week of moderate to vigorous intensity exercise, mm-hmm. or 70 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise, and two times of resistance training, working at least eight to 12 exercises for major body parts. Yeah.
0: So you've there got, you got go. the whole recipe. So, so, so if you're approaching your life as I'm walking for exercise, does that check the boxes or do you really need to get your heart rate up regularly?
1: It helps, yeah. So there's a difference between exercise and activity. And notice that I said the more important thing that we need to focus on is movements and that's activity, right? Like just being more active throughout the day, not being significantly active for 30 minutes to an hour in a day. Um, and, And that's valuable too, it's wonderfully helpful. It is then when you go and sit down or recline for the rest of the 23 hours, then we don't see a massive jump in the quality of life. We see that that's still very dangerous for people. And so it is movement, regular movement. You know, when you're, uh, I have an Apple watch and this, thing will buzz and tell me to stand up right it's it's time to stand and I get so annoyed sometimes but it's because I'm not ready to stand but it's time to stand right like and so I think there are some good things out there Um, we've seen some research that talks about even you know a three minute walk every um, 30 minutes where you just are working at your desk and then you get up for three minutes and that could just be a bathroom thing right so Maybe if you drink more water, you can go to the bathroom more. That's probably enough activity just to not be sedentary so much. Right. But it is crazy the amount of research that we have on sedentary lifestyle mm-hmm. and the numbers associated with increased likelihood of heart disease, of diabetes, of cancers mm-hmm. even that, mm-hmm. that exist because people don't move enough. So when somebody says that they walk for exercise, I, I don't correct them, but I'm like, you know, you walk for activity, uh, your exercise is a planned and generally more yes. stressful exercise.
0: Yes. Yes. It makes me think about, cause I have an Apple watch as well, and now I'm sort of eyeing, and this is by no means an endorsement of any particular thing, but I'm sort of eyeing whoop only because I don't think, maybe I'm missing this, but I don't think the Apple Watch tracks heart rate variability, it just tracks heart rate. And at least from my slight diving into cardiovascular, my understanding is heart rate variability is good to have throughout the day in terms of different levels of heart rate is better than having... You know, kind of, I remember growing up thinking, well, you know, a resting heart rate of 70, under Mm -hmm. 70 is good. And now it seems like I'm hearing a lot about you want variability, meaning sometimes it's 120 or, you know, 220 minus your age and all that kind of thing.
1: So let me clear up heart rate variability because uh, you're right where there's a lot more research about heart rate variability. Yeah but heart rate variability isn't, you know, 160 uh, beats per minute or 70 or this. So it it is the amount of time between each successive beat. And so there's variability between this beat and the next beat and the next beat. And um, that variability we've we've found to actually be really helpful in understanding how healthy people can be. And some of it has to do with the autonomic nervous system and how it supports our our you know heart rate without thinking right um, and so and there are plug-in apps so I have an app that I have on my Apple Watch oh. that allows me to read so my awesome. your your Apple Watch can do it it just doesn't come with the software to read it. it so I have software that reads it and then it just comes up in my normal Apple uh, Health. App. Got it. So, with that being said, you're not necessarily looking at variability between what's your lowest and your highest heart rate, but what is your heart rate? When your heart rate's at 70 beats per minute, then what's the variability between each beat? Mm-hmm. And you want that to be varied. And I think right. before we probably actually thought it was good just to be like as normal and as regular as possible. And that's actually not as beneficial. <sighs> right. And I think it increases, it, it shows that. Um, it it gives you a better idea of when you can challenge yourself and how hard you can challenge yourself when your variability has been elevated.
0: Right. Right. Got it. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So, um, so I, I have a question here. We've kind of taken a dive into it a little bit in terms of, um, what your life looks now and your affiliation with NASM and being a business owner. So we've, we've kind of touched on that. Um, let's just take a few moments here just to talk a little bit more. When you mentioned you fairly recently found out that you were diabetic and I'm, I'm be, you know, if you're comfortable sharing kind of how one finds out this is something that they have, um, maybe you could go into a little bit about that and how, you know, either for people who are listening, who are diabetic, or maybe how your approach to fitness and wellness on a personal level changed for you as a result of finding out about your condition?
1: Yeah, I was diagnosed, well, I had pre-diabetes and I think that our first kind of numbers that I got back from my physician in a, in a, just a regular checkup was that my blood sugar was at like 5.6 and she looked at it and she was like, oh, that's odd. And I was like, it is, I guess. I don't know what the numbers are supposed to be. And she was right. like, "It just, it's a little high. And, right. you know, but did you eat before you came? And I was like, no, I fasted. And she was like, hmm. all right, well, um, I won't think much of it because you're relatively healthy, you eat relatively well. You know, like I know what you do for a living. She'd been my physician for a while. Um, so she was like, let's just uh, uh, table it, but just be aware and, and I was like, okay, so the next year I went back and uh, it was like a 6.2. And she was like, mm, that was now, now it's getting a little tricky. Like you are what we would, we, you're pre-diabetic. And so I was like, no, I'm not, <laughs> right? Like I just refused it. I was like, I am not pre-diabetic. Uh, and so I, I went and I made the change of like, I stopped putting international delight in my coffee, you know, <laughs> Like well, that was it. That was, that was my little big life change right there. Right. And just because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young and I'm healthy and I'm relatively fit and I eat relatively well. And so I, uh, didn't think too much about it. And then, uh, another year went by, I was 20, uh, 17, And like, it was a, it was right at the diabetic number. And I just, I got really defensive and I said, no, no, I refuse it. And I I think my, my numbers were at like 7.2. And, um, and so I then left and I went on like a workout tirade and intermittent fasting and I'm doing all of these things. And, uh, and then I got sick. I got the flu. And then I started losing weight and I was like, man, I'm doing really great. And I'm losing weight and I didn't have a lot of weight. I'm, I'm, I'm short. I'm five, eight and a half, five, nine. I weighed 160 pounds um, and I'm losing weight and I'm like, all right, all right, this feels pretty good. And I remember I was at a, a party one time for a, another business that I owned before, uh, pre-pandemic, then survived the pandemic called Recover. And I remember a friend of mine was like, I hadn't seen you in a while. He hugged me and his arms like went all the way around me. And I was like, I feel really tiny right now.
2: Yeah. And I went
1: and I weighed myself and I weighed 130. <gasps> so I had lost 30 pounds. Um, my eyesight was blurry. And my I was peeing all the time. I was drinking water as if it was like the most magical elixir ever gifted to somebody. I, mm-hmm. And I'm not a water drinker. And eventually I started putting it together. And I was like, maybe this weight loss is not because of all the extra exercise. And I looked it up and it was like, yep, diabetes, extreme weight gain or weight loss. And so I immediately called my doctor and uh, went in and I got my A1Cs back. And I had gone in a four-month period from 7.2 to uh, to 12.6. And uh, that's a a critical number. The number's really high. My my fasting blood sugar was 350. Um, And so for the people who are out there listening that don't know what this means, you just don't know what it means. But for the ones that do, you're listening and you're like, that's not good at all. Uh, So uh, I even... I had had a a dinner one time shortly after my diagnosis and I hadn't had medication yet. And I tested my blood sugar and it was at 550 and my wife sent me to the hospital. And I was like, I'm not going to go. I made it seem like I was a college student after a night of drinking. I was like, what? I'll sleep it off. It'll be fine. So she called my doctor for me because I wasn't going to, and then handed me the phone. And my doctor goes, I know you don't want to hear this, but. I agree with your wife. Right. <laughs> I was like, I right. don't want to hear that. <laughs> right. But I did. Right. And I went to the hospital and they gave me a shot of insulin and <sniffs> blood sugar dropped immediately. And I was able to go home. And we didn't know if I was type one or type two because type two just seemed um, off as somebody who, again, relatively fit, ate pretty well to, to have diabetes. But it is a multifactorial disease. Uh, There are a lot of things about it that are, uh, that create consequences from different things and genetics is a part of it. I didn't know that i had had two great grandparents that were both amputees because of diabetes. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are are a lot of things I've learned in the process. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I learned in the process is, um, you know, the the fact that it's not just because you eat uh, a bunch of uh, unhealthy food or because, uh, I mean, the biggest correlate for type two diabetes is obesity Mm -hmm. and yet not everybody that's obese has type two diabetes and not everybody that gets type two diabetes is obese. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of things that we need to figure out about this disease.
0: Right. Right. So how is it now for you? How have you integrated taking care of yourself and um, just kind of keeping up on your health with your lifestyle? has. Do you feel like your lifestyle's significantly changed or has thing, have things reached an, a different level now where it's more manageable?
1: Uh, I think it's, it's changed a bit. Maybe I'm yeah. a bit more aware of the work I do, the exercise I do and how I do it, more movement throughout the day. Because you know, think about it, like I was in school and I might exercise, but then I'd sit at a computer all day long Let me read this. Let me study that my entire weekend and my wife would take the kids to soccer and I'm at school doing my online doctorate. Um, And so I think that was probably a contribution to it. Um, Sure. But, uh, you know, but again, it's multifactorial. There are a lot of things that contributed to it and it sucked, but that's what it is. Right. So do I work out more? Probably I, I exercise more regularly, but I move more regularly. Got it. I get up throughout the day much more. Uh, and then I try to be aware, like I like carbs were no problem for me back in the day, right? Like I love cereal and I love sandwiches, right? So okay. let's, let's hook up the carbohydrates. And I just, I'm more aware of that now. And I don't, right. it doesn't mean that that's, I don't eat any of that anymore, but it does mean that, I'm much more aware and I'm I control that. Uh, right. And that and I'm also on medications. So I have medications that help to support my process as well.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. So that certainly was unexpected, although it seems yeah. like you've kind of found, you know, maybe not saying you found peace with it is a way to describe it, but you've come to a point where you've integrated it into your life and found ways to work with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say I found peace with it because otherwise yeah. I'd, I'd still be flustered every day I wake Good. up. And, like I can't, like I'm, I'm at peace with it. some people have heart disease. Some people have, right. you know, a lot of things that they deal with. If I'm going to have, uh, you know, a progressive disease, at least I've got one that I I'm, I'm set pretty well at how well right. I can control it. So right. I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I'm okay with that.
0: Absolutely. That's great. That's like super inspiring, especially for people who are listening that are diabetic or even people who have clients, you know, yoga clients who are struggling. And Um, and
1: maybe more than you think.
0: Oh, for sure. And also just, I think the whole theme of when you were telling your story, the whole theme of, you know, being responsible for your health and some of the things that come up and, you know, just the benefit of having an annual physical, which I think a lot of people don't always do is so important. I know for me, when I had a annual physical, they found some thyroid things. I'm over 50, even though that's common, I wouldn't have known if I didn't go for my annual physical. So, you know, it's so important. So for those people out there who haven't had just a regular checkup, you got to just do that. Right. Agreed. I
2: agree (laughs) with that.
0: Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I do a lot of is train teachers on anatomy. And you know I have kind of my own theories of kind of an approach to training trainers. Um, again, in my world, it's training teachers, although teachers, trainers, we can kind of use the word interchangeably. I would love to have you talk a little bit about what your approach is to training people. So when you have kind of up and coming, recently graduated CPTs, or in any context where you're you know, doing these workshops, what are some things that you kind of use in your approach when you work with people in a training capacity where you're there as the person with expertise and you're working with people who are just starting out or at some point in their path?
1: I think it's important to acknowledge that when people come to get education, they're, they're trying to solve some type of problem. Mm-hmm. I, they're they're trying to do this for a reason. I don't think people just try to get education for education's sake. They're doing it for a purpose. right? And so I, I always thought it was silly to hear the idea. I learn more from my students than as much from my students as they learn from me. And so you start putting yourself in a position where if you just get up and teach without knowing who your students are, Uh Then you're not learning from them. And I, I teach adults, right? So I'm not teaching kids who, you know, they're more of a blank canvas. When you have an adult come in the room, then that person's lived a life. That Mm -hmm. person's got a story they've got experience. Some of it makes this education challenging. Some of it makes it easier. Some of it makes its applications in different ways than I can even imagine. Mm -hmm. And so trying to get a better idea of who is in the room and who I'm working with, because if they're not getting it, I usually try to turn that back on me and go, Mm -hmm. well, that's my fault that they're Mm -hmm. not getting it. if, if you're not getting it, it's not because you're not smart or it's not because you don't have, it's because I'm not teaching you in a way that you get it. And that's my learning process. Right. That's how I continue to learn. Mm-hmm. So uh, figuring out who's in the room and if developing a process that allows me to learn better how to teach. Right. If I want to be a better teacher, then I have to learn that stuff. I can't just go and rely on, all oh, reliable. I know origin insertion is this, and you know, there's there, you have to know that stuff, but yeah. how you teach it and how they learn it, it's, it's significant. And, and it, it should vary at least a little bit based off of who you're working with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's totally right on. And and I think it's a perfect lead in. I have kind of one more question in this first piece before we go to the last piece of just talking about some actual scenarios from a anatomy standpoint, you know, so if you take that scenario of, or situation of working uh, in a training capacity where you're training people. Now, can we shift it to the the scenario where you're training a client? Because that Mm -hmm. is really, for most of my listeners, the scenario that they're in all the time. Albeit right now, they're doing that teaching online, which brings up its own set of questions and thoughts and wonderings. Um, But we can just kind of say, generally speaking, you know, when you're teaching clients, right, you're working one-on-one with someone or you're working with a group of people and you're the teacher and they're the students, not student Mm -hmm. trainers, students. Um, One of the things that you just said that resonated with me was thinking about how your teaching is coming across to them, almost like putting yourself in their shoes, consuming your words, I would think would kind of shift how you present things versus if you're talking to a bunch of trainers, you're going to present it in a certain way. So what are your thoughts about, or kind of have you, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about how you train clients so that, you know, they're getting it?
1: Yeah. I, so for the most part, for me, training clients, it's a lot different. My clients really don't care about what plane of motion they're moving in. They don't care about joint actions. They don't care, you know, they might be interested in what muscle they're working. Yeah, right? yo, same. Is that the bicep? Is that the glute, right? Um, so they might be interested in that, but I don't, you know, it's more important for me at this point when I work with a client is the cueing. So how I can get somebody to perform it well, okay. um, to idealize or optimize movement. So it's not necessarily about the um, biomechanics, Mm -hmm. of exercise it Mm -hmm. is about the performance of that exercise so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's um knowledge of performance and knowledge of results Mm -hmm. so we see this a lot of times that somebody uh like my my youngest son five years old he was like dad i can do i can do 20 push-ups and i said okay let me see it and he'll do 20 push-ups and the result was 20 push-ups but the performance was (laughs) atrocious so uh, we see people who who look good doing what they do and we see people who don't necessarily perform things well just as long as they can get a certain number in or a certain weight lift in or just because you can get into a pose and you don't fall over does not mean that you're doing that well, right? right. So there's an alignment that's, that's idealized that we're looking to do. So it's less for me about teaching mechanics or biomechanics, it's more about uh, creating um, a, a queuing environment that allows them to do something better. Mm-hmm. And if they can't do it better, I need to check two things. I need to, one, make sure that I'm queuing the right thing. Cause I just might not, I might be awful at queuing. It might be a queuing issue, or you just don't get the way that I'm coaching. And I, I have to right. do that. You can't right change yourself to figure out what I'm saying. I need to figure out how you learn. And then the other thing is there might be some mechanics that are going on that don't allow them to be able to do it Mm -hmm. in the best position. So I'll cue it first. I'll cue it again. If I don't get the cueing, then i go back and say, okay, well, maybe there's a mechanical issue that makes that difficult. So maybe you're tight in certain muscles, maybe you're weaker in other muscles, and we have to go through and do some, maybe some stretching or release techniques on the tight muscles, do some pre-activation before we do another exercise to see if we can get you better aligned.
0: Got it. This is so great because first of all, like I love that you're espousing things that I talk about as well when I train teachers. So the synergy there is really spot on, which is great from kind of like an approach to training people perspective. so, and this is also a great launch pad into the last couple of moments we'll spend together here. Okay. If I can just take a little bit more of your time to go over some scenarios, would that be okay? Sure. Yeah. yeah okay.
2: Yeah, good.
0: All right. So, what you just said about, um, you know, this idea, you brought up the word alignment. Of course, alignment, uh, a line, creating a line in a way is like literally yeah. the word. And that's always a big component of yoga teaching because alignment is a lot of, the aspect of the shape that we ideally wanna see. And I guess to a certain extent, even though we call it the five kinetic checkpoints in the exercise science world, there's a similarity there. So, we have to, I wanna just kind of put out there, there is the issue of professional scope of practice. So of course, as yoga teachers, our professional scope of practice is different from personal trainers, versus physical therapists, orthopedic surgeons and onward. Um, However, you know, be that as it may, as teachers, we are gonna see things in students when they're in certain poses. And even though we might not be doing exercise testing or using a goniometer or strength testing or anything that might be done in these other scenarios, we still might wonder, I wonder why that's happening. And it still might give us an opportunity to offer to the student, hey, if we have a chat with them, maybe try some of this, or maybe try some of that, get back to me, let me know how that felt. So given that's within our purview, let me just pose a couple of scenarios to you that um, even though they're yoga, uh, they will have their parallel in the exercise science world. So in yoga when we do something like a chair pose which is kind of like a squat you know we have our shoulders in flexion our arms up are in the air we have the feet together the legs together the hips are in adduction we bend our knees we sit down low and sometimes what uh, well number one sometimes what cut what can be done modification wise is people might teach it with the feet at hip width and in that situation they might definitely see the knees knocking in However, even if someone has their feet together, even though their knees are not knocking in, they might see some variability in the direction of the knees. And from an alignment perspective, the yoga teacher might be saying, bend your knees, direct your kneecap straight ahead, or in the scenario where the feet are hip width, try to keep your knees forward. So one thing I wanted to just chat about is what might be a reason why someone has this kind of knocking in of the knees. We see it also as teachers, when someone's in a forward fold, you're kind of starting a typical yoga practice. You maybe have them do a child's pose and a down dog. Then you have them do kind of a forward fold. Feet are definitely hip width there. And you might also see fallen arches, knees knocking in. Um, There's ways you can cue them out of it by just using different cues. Um, but I think it would be helpful for teachers to understand what could potentially be going on there that might cause that.
1: Sure, yeah. I I think the most important thing is that if you can cue somebody out of it, it means they can do it, right? So sometimes they just don't know exactly what they're looking for, so it's mm-hmm. our ability to communicate that that's, mm-hmm. that's vital. If they can't make the adjustments, then maybe they can't make the adjustments. Mm -hmm. It's not a conscious decision. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to right? like people like I'm trying to do this and they get frustrated because they think maybe you think that they just don't comprehend it. They comprehend it. They can't do it. So there's a mechanical issue going on. Um, so why does it happen? Like there, and, and who knows where, uh, it starts, right? Like, I don't know why your adapters got tight. I can, probably indicate just from your movement that they are. I might also in that position want to identify whether that knee knocking or what we call a valgus position, is that coming from your adductors primarily, or is it coming from your TFL which is uh, an internal rotator. So when you are in that position and that muscle activates, then the internal rotation will create a deduction.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, you know, and, and sometimes it gets even more than that, right? So what that's tight muscles and it might not be a tight muscle. You might do some tests and you, you maybe just have them do like a, a butterfly stretch, right? Where they're, mm-hmm. solo, they're, they're seated, so their feet are together and then their knees flop all the way to the side. And you go, oh my gosh, Their range of motion is incredible. It's not a flexibility issue. Then what is it? Well, it's a strength issue. It's mm-hmm. not that that muscle is tight and pulling, it's that the muscle on the other side. So maybe Love the that. glute max, the glute medius, they're just not being able to produce enough strength or force in that position. Mm-hmm. So no, nobody's calling you weak, right? But they, <laughs> you're not able to produce, produce enough force in that position to keep the knees from knocking together. Right, So right. We want to be able to communicate with people on a level where, first of all, we don't, we don't want them to feel weak or less than or incapable, but we also want to be able to clearly identify what's going on because you could be foam rolling and stretching your adductors all day long because you think they're tight. And then two months later, nothing's fixed. And you do this test and their legs fall out to the side and you're like, oh, they haven't been tight this whole time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Maybe it's something else. So Mm -hmm. That's why I'm doing, um, uh, I'm a big fan of the NASM corrective exercise course because that allows you to, to identify some movement imbalances and then provides a series of things. Now, Some of those are the, the release and the stretch. Some of them are the strengthening of the weaker and underactive muscles. We want to make those stronger. But then one of the other things that we don't do is we don't then say, all right, let's incorporate that into more of a global movement pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in this instance, it would be like, what's a more of a total body yoga movement mm-hmm. that, that I think about it in the band, right? So you've taken one person out that's playing a little sharp and you have them work on it. You take somebody else, it's a little flat or their timing is off. Mm-hmm. And so you're working with a trombone player over here and you're working mm-hmm. with a cellist over here. And then at the end of it, we go, okay, now, and, and n- now perform. And what we wanna do is we, we wanna integrate them back into this rehearsal space where they work together before mm-hmm. we focus on speed or plyometrics. And I know yoga has got some jumping that goes on in there. Uh, they've got some real serious challenging holds mm-hmm. that take place. And you just want to minimize some of those holds until you can orchestrate a little better after doing some stretching, after doing some isolated strengthening, get them to work together and then add the challenge and see if they move better. And I'm not going to say you'll be fixed because mm. that's, a, that's a tricky word, but you should see better movement almost immediately. Right. And if you don't see better movement, then it's maybe the assessment wasn't done well. Uh, it could be two, maybe the um, interpretation of the assessment wasn't done well. Three, maybe the application of the assessment wasn't done well. And then four, maybe it's outside of our scope of practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Okay. So this is great. So let me ask you another scenario. So something that comes up uh, a lot when I talk to yoga teachers as a question, and I, I've kind of learned a number of the factors involved primarily from my NASM training, uh, both Mm -hmm. the corrective exercise and the CPT, this idea of when you're in uh, spinal extension, having low back pain. So in the yoga scenario, the place that comes up a lot is people that do upward facing dog, Mm -hmm. like full upward facing dog versus locust, which is more elbows are bent and you're closer to the ground. So the degree of spinal extension is more in kind of full up dog. My shoulders are over my wrists, my hips are in extension, and I'm really, you know, maybe not aware of the muscles I'm using, but the student will complain to the teacher, my low back hurts here. And while there can be modifications that are generally offered, like, well, don't have your arms totally straight, bend your elbows and come closer to the floor. I think sometimes teachers aren't always aware of why that even potentially helps. And in general, not really understanding. I mean, I think oftentimes when we don't have an understanding of anatomy, if someone says, I have low back pain, as a student, they're going to think it's something in my back versus looking at something in the neighborhood, you know, kind of below the lumbar or above the lumbar. Is there anything um, that you could speak to that kind of would contribute to low back pain in spinal extension? especially in kind of a closed chain scenario versus like, if I'm an airplane pose, I have spinal extension, might not feel it there, but here I am, hands are locked down, feet are locked down, and I'm leveraging the floor. And as a student, I might be like, wow, this really hurts my low back. And the teacher might be like, I wonder what that's about.
1: <laughs> right, uh, it's a, that's a great question. Uh, some people have what's called uh, a, a spinal extension intolerance, right? Mm -hmm. They just, they can't do it. Some other people, if you put them into slight spinal flexion or a posterior pelvic tilt, uh, that bothers them, especially if there was some load to it. So Mm -hmm. um, it it depends And back pain. I mean, we talked about diabetes as being a multifactorial disease. (laughs) Low back pain is multifactorial. And you can't just, somebody says, oh, I have back pain. And you go, oh, this is what's wrong. Right, uh, that's that's not. Uh, it, it's a wild disservice because we right. don't know what's wrong. Um and these are simply just some movements that people can't do. So the best thing for right now, what we're talking about, like you could do uh, airplane position. It didn't bother them. It's probably because they weren't in nearly as much extension as they were in when they were careening their body upward in that pushed uh, up dog position. Yeah, and so. There, there are reasons and there might be, I don't know, maybe there's, um, you know, the nerves leave the spine and there are little holes in between the spines called foramina yeah. that the nerves go through. Well, in extension, especially if you're getting uh, paresthesia, so you're getting yeah. some uh, some nervy, nervy pain
2: mm-hmm. going
1: down the back and through the legs, then it's probably because you've got a narrowing of those foramina, those mm-hmm. holes are getting a little smaller. Uh, if it just aches, right? So people push into it, that's a that's an extension intolerance that they have. I don't know why. Like maybe yeah. it's some, some tightness, maybe it's weakness. Maybe you have built up compression from tight muscles, just paraspinal, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. as soon as you go into extension, it adds additional compression and it doesn't feel good. Right. So uh, some people have already arched low backs and an anterior pelvic tilt. And so when they go further into that, being right. pushed into a position that they've been in and kind of live in for a long time, then it aggravates it. So right. um, the one thing that you can do, and this goes back to what we talked about before, is not necessarily, we're not looking for the answer. We're looking for the modification. Right, right. So let's practice the modification. And as a as a fitness professional, and I, I've been blessed through my education to have... Um, Uh, not just a a master's in exercise science, a doctorate in health science. I I have a uh, degree and a license in massage therapy.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. If I did not
1: have my massage therapy license, I would refer everybody out. Now, what I do mostly now is I have a series of assessments that I can go through and then I can do hands-on work to help support them. And if I can't help them in one to two, like I don't work on people as a massage therapist. I just work on them as a massage therapist in preparation for our personal training. Mm-hmm. And I send them out. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm not the one that's like, hey, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Let me <laughs> let me see if I can figure out everything. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, my, I don't have a scope of practice that allows me to deal with pain
2: mm-hmm. as a
1: fitness professional mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. don't either as a yoga professional. Right. right. So what do you do? You refer them to a pain professional, so mm. physical therapist, acupuncture, chiropractic, mm. you know, somebody that can support them in their process. And then you just try to keep them out of pain while you're working together. Strengthen them through the range of motions that they can do. And that's another one of my favorite things that I say all the time, do what you can, not what you can't. And there's a lot of people out there just trying to do stuff they can't do.
0: That is true. That is true. Um, All right. So I have one other one, which is kind of related. Uh, Well, actually let me, I have a couple more, but I'm just going to pick one just in the interest of time. So one of the things that comes up a lot in yoga teaching is things around the knee. So Mm -hmm. things like don't let your knee go past your heel in a lunge or watch for the centering of the knee cap, centering the patella as maybe something like in a warrior two, where the torso is turning to one direction, like to the left as the front knee is bending alignment wise straight ahead. So one of the things, and you talked about this a little bit when you were talking about muscles that are too weak or muscles that are too strong, potentially creating you know, a different out of alignment picture for someone in a particular pose. So if someone is in something like a shape where you want the alignment to be knees straight ahead or kneecap straight ahead, and you see that kind of medial, it's usually not lateral, but you see that kind of medial yeah. tracking. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about to what your thought be it's something muscular or something kind of connective tissue related in terms of like ligament or tendon what what's your thought there
1: or what i mean
0: i don't want to put words in your mouth what's kind of your thought in general
1: yeah usually i i I immediately go to muscular so there will be some things like lack of range of motion certain places the way that they feel things you might Mm -hmm. feel um there to be issues but they're all the things that we can control are muscular yeah. We don't control ligaments. And so uh, that's, yeah. the, that's the only way that we can, can really dig into to figuring out what's going on is what yeah. we're capable of doing. So I right. can work with tightness and I can work with weakness. Right. Um, what I can't do, I can't work with lax <laughs> ligaments or right. uh, you know, uh, a, a joint that there's um, arthrokinematics, which are how right. the joints move and there's a rolling, uh, a sliding, and a spinning, a slide or a glide. So these are kind of theoretically the three different movements that the internal workings of joints do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there can be capsular issues that make it difficult for the joint to do that. There can be ligament issues or tendon issues, but the one that we can control are the muscular issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, again, doing what we can, not what we can't. Um, can, can I passively, move you into that position. Well, mm-hmm. if I can passively do it, I know you can get there. So now I need to do, know if you can actively do it, right? So mm-hmm. now can you do it without me supporting you?
2: Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you can
1: do it without me supporting you, then we just need to continue to strengthen you in that. If you can't do it through that that movement that I know you can passively get to, but you just can't actively do it, then that might be a severe weakness that's, that's there. And focusing on exercises that would more acutely address the weakness in that muscle, um, might be more important. It might be more valuable. And, you know, that, that in this particular pose you're talking about where the knee adducts, um, it would be your abductors of the hips. And I tell people a lot of times the the knee issues usually aren't knee issues. Knee issues are hip and ankle issues. So you've got, um, a joint like the knee that moves in the sagittal plane has some frontal and transverse right. plane movement, but it's a sagittal plane mover. And then it's stuck between two highly mobile joints in multiple planes. Right. The hip circumducts, the ankle does kind of a faux circumduction It has all of this range of motion. And then you've got these two really large bones right. from you know the femur and the tibia, and they come and they meet. And now the knee, it's, I, it's an awful analogy, but I tell people, I stopped using it for a while and then somebody said, it really actually made a lot of sense and it helped me and I've never forgotten. And it, but I would always say, um, it, when mommy and daddy are fighting, it's the kid in the middle that gets hurt. Right. So right. you have these highly mobile joints and Yeah. communication's not there. Yeah. It's not yeah. there, but they're stuck between these really two large bones, which means a little bit of, of miscommunication, Means that there's a lot of leverage to create um, misalignment at the knee.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's where you have to really look and see what's going on with mm-hmm. people in their movement, their body. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really good way to um, help you understand it. And it also, you know, I always say to teachers, like, don't just zoom in, you got to also zoom out. Because if you're Absolutely. constantly zooming in, which is what happens when you're like consuming all this anatomy content, muscle pictures, it's like, you got to zoom out too, because that's how, well, that's the
1: thing. I heard it put beautifully one time is that it's like a Surratt painting where you have oh, yeah. pointism, right? Like you, you get really focused and you're in looking at the point and it's not until you pull back farther that you're like, oh my gosh, there's a whole picture there. Yeah. I was just looking at the dots. Yeah. So sometimes you get to back up and look at the whole picture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in closing, I would love to just have you. Um, You know, for a lot of my listeners out there who are yoga teachers, they know in their heart that anatomy is something that they need to brush up on. They know that it is a learning gap for them. And there are not so much imposter syndrome issues, but just kind of a lot of mindset. Um, related thoughts. Anatomy is really hard to learn anatomy. I'm not science minded. I'm never going to be able to learn anatomy. It's so difficult. There's so much to understand. And I remember when I was listening to one of your podcast episodes where you were talking about, um, I think it was different muscles and what they do. And you were going through like in a squat, this one's acting eccentrically. And, and, you know, you just kept saying, I know this is a lot of information. If you got to listen to this again, just do it. And, you know, you were kind of reading the minds of the listener, you know, and I knew it, but I was still having, as I was walking through the Boston common, I was having like, I'm squatting and standing and doing all this stuff as you're doing your podcast, because I had to really use my brain to kind of get in sync with you. So tell the listeners out there who are having a lot of these thoughts around you know, I know I gotta know anatomy as a yoga teacher, but I just don't know that I can learn it. Are there some just general tips you have for how to break it down so that it is understandable to or, you know to uh, to learn?
1: I, I think so. Um, you know, people <laughs> that aren't anatomy minded, I, I look at them like, well, are you Sanskrit minded? Like, that's <laughs> not normal. It's not yeah. no. It's just it's language, right? Right.
2: right and
1: that's right. where I said, listen to the podcast again because you need to listen to it as part of language, not as a learning objective. And that becomes the problem. And it's like me trying to teach you Spanish versus going into a Spanish world and living where Spanish is spoken. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, okay, I don't understand anything that's going on, but one day the light's gonna click and everything's gonna start falling in place or a lot mm-hmm. of things will. Um, also, when you you look at language, I just think it's really funny. Um, we look at this as being a different language and it is, it's Latin, it's Greek, but it's not heady. I think it's the funniest thing when we look at words and we're like, oh my goodness, I'll never, gastrocnemius, what a name, what a name. And then we look at it and we break it down, gastroc, where we know the the term, if we really think about it, gastroc, like gastroenterologist, it means belly and yeah. Nemius means leg it means belly leg you mean some people that spoke latin or greek are sitting there looking at somebody's bottom of their leg their calf muscles and go that looks like a big pregnant belly doesn't it? And they're like yeah it does let's call it belly leg Yay. And it's just, yeah the names yeah. are simple but they're just in a different language mm-hmm. and we need to hear it and speak it like sanskrit as you're learning yoga You need to hear it. You need to say it. You need to speak it Mm. to learn it and to learn it well. When people say, how do you learn it? How do you know anatomy so well? I say, but I teach it. Mm. Like, that's why I know it. I say these things over and over again. Mm. I can't remember the last time I reviewed anatomy, Karen. I can't remember the last time. But when people ask me anatomy questions, I know it. Mm. right so that stuff is in my head yeah it just it doesn't like I said when it's a learning objective that makes it harder when it's part of your conversation Mm. it makes it easier yeah and I would also was blessed early on where I had a lot of people we're all trying to figure it out together so we were learning it we were talking through it it was it became conversational and then we were You know, it's it's part of the process. And then to learn how to implement it, right? So we look at at neuromuscular efficiency and anatomy, and we know that um, we want the neuromuscular system's ability to produce, reduce, and dynamically stabilize in multiple planes at various speeds, safely, with coordination. We want all of that to take place. right? But all we tend to focus on is, well, what is the concentric movement? Right. Well, what, what in these examples that you gave, where you were like, "Well, what if the knee does that?" That means, well, there's something eccentrically not holding up its end. Right. So, what's the muscle that's not eccentrically decelerating it? If right. that muscle were to activate, would realign it and pull it back? Right. What muscles are supposed to be dynamically stabilizing in this pose that are not stabilizing? Can we address those? Right. And are there poses? that you have in your world that address those particular muscles so that you can do them as like a precursor. Right. Like let's do this pose because it's going to do something to activate this muscle which tends to be weaker in this other pose. And you do a pre and a post. Let's do it. Let's do the first exercise. Eh, all right. The knee goes in, let's do this exercise that strengthens the abductors, the glute medius, glute maximus, let's right. put you back in, see if it supported you at all. Right. right. So you can do your own series of assessments and pre and post mm-hmm. to see what's working as you're trying to figure things out. And it's not always about cueing. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's about figuring out where the weaknesses are, where right. the tightnesses are and how do we address those?
0: Right. Love it. That's great. Wow. Well, we have come to the end here. I'm going to let you go because we've gone over what I wanted to. I, I actually meant to ask you at the beginning, what's your kind of end hard stop for this, but I really appreciate you indulging me here for 90 full minutes. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just looked down at my watch. And we've been lucky because I haven't heard any dog barking. So I'm really grateful for that. So we will, there will be no editing of the podcast. We can use this. We can use this right off the bat. So thank you so much for your time here. I'm so excited to share this with my... Um, community of yoga teachers and really give them a lens for some of them who aren't familiar with NASM, um, you know, if or anything else to maybe even encourage them to get their CPT in addition, even if they're not going to work as a personal trainer, just to right. do what I've done, which is leverage all the amazing information and then be part of that community as well. Um, but even if they don't do that, to just hear from you, uh, yeah, all of this has just been super, super helpful and valuable and very practical. That's why I, I love the examples we went through, because that's that's ground level stuff for us as teachers. So thank you so much.
1: Karen, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And uh, if if your listeners are interested and they want to hear my podcast.
0: Yes. Give a shout out to yeah where that is, yeah, how they can get thank there. you.
1: Uh, It's called the NASM, that's for the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Mm -hmm. So the NASM CPT podcast for certified personal trainers. So if uh, you'd like to just kind of listen and see if that's something that you're interested in, then I'd be Mm -hmm. happy to have you. And then uh, I'm most active on Instagram. So it's at richie R-I-C-H-E-Y.
0: And the other place that I see information from you is on the NASM Facebook page. So would that be another place that people can go to?
1: Yeah. So you can go to the National Academy of Sports Medicine's Facebook page. And that's where we'll do like some of the live stream that we do. So we'll, uh, the podcast sometimes is live streamed and that just gets people so they can ask questions online and I can answer it in real time.
0: That's great. That's always an opportunity because I know sometimes I listen. I'm like, boy, I wish I could ask a question. I know I've sent you a couple of DMs. So I appreciate you responding. So that's great.
1: Oh, you are welcome.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I will send you this recording. This will go up uh, Monday. So here it is Friday. So a couple of days, I'll send you the link. And um, again, just many, many thanks. Have a great weekend.
1: And I hope to chat
0: with you again at some point.
1: I look forward to it, Karen. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Bye. Take care.
1: Thanks and bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my Mentorship Program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.